I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 25th, 2014. Coming up, we'll discuss what happens in our brains as we're dying. Most of us are really afraid of dying. I find it interesting to know that all kinds of neurochemical and electrical changes may be happening at the time of death. And we'll learn about the 1964 Great Alaskan Earthquake, how it shook our understanding of plate tectonics into place. It really place. is uh, you know, a, a history of science sort of topic. Um, and I, I'm hoping very much that during this anniversary, one of the things that we'll do is really just appreciate what an influence it has. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. With all the recent debate about government surveillance and privacy, have you wondered what your phone records reveal about your own private life? According to researchers at the Stanford Security Lab at Stanford University, they can expose who your friends are, where you go to church, which doctors you're seeing, and even what medical conditions you're being treated for. And they can do it all using metadata, which numbers you call, when, and for how long, that kind of stuff that National Security Administration sifts through, according to the Edward Snowden leaks. The government claims that collecting metadata isn't surveillance because nobody is listening to the content of the calls. But technology experts and even judges have said that metadata is just data and that it can reveal plenty of sensitive private information about an innocent person, which lets the researchers look for patterns in phone metadata. Religious and political affiliations, cardiac and neurological diseases, gun ownership, and reproductive health services are just a few examples of the insights they gained into people's private lives. And the picture only got clearer when these patterns were added to data from Facebook profiles and other social media. Stanford graduate student Jonathan Mayer, who was involved in the research, published the latest results in his blog. You can see the report at webpolicy.org. Hopefully by now you've already woken up and smelled the coffee. But would that be the chocolatey aroma of a Brazilian breakfast blend or the fruity freshness of an Ethiopian espresso? And could your nose be expected to tell the difference? Actually, yes, as some of you aficionados may already be well aware, a new study has found that human beings can distinguish roughly one trillion individual scents. That's much, much more than the previous estimate of about 10,000 odors. Knowing that we have this superhuman sense of smell, while not yet in the league of cats or snakes, might mean that we can begin to sniff the world in a whole new way, say the researchers. The study was published in Science last Friday. I'll take another sip to that one. <laughs> a group of scientists are meeting this week in Japan to finish a sweeping report on the impacts of climate change. They're the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Well, they'll have a new alarming data point. Boulder scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration have reported that carbon dioxide levels at an observatory in Hawaii have reached a long-feared milestone earlier than last year, and for several days in a row. The Mauna Loa Observatory, observatory shows that levels of the most important heat-trapping gas in the atmosphere hit the 400 parts per million mark every day last week from Sunday through Thursday. The benchmark was reached for the first time last May. The levels of atmospheric CO2 fluctuate seasonally. They normally peak in May and dip to their low point in September. That's when leaf growth in the northern hemisphere sucks billions of tons of carbon dioxide out of the air. The 400 mark is not believed to be a point of no return, but it is a concentration that the Earth has not experienced for millions of years. 
NOAA runs the Mauna Loa Observatory, which is part of a global network of about 65 data collection points utilized by NOAA around the world. On the calendar this week, tomorrow night, Café Scientifique will host a talk called The Big Bang Unraveled and Explained. Dr. Dmitry Klebe, an astrophysicist at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, will give the talk. The event starts at 6.30 at Brooklands near Lodo in Denver. For more info, go to cafesicolorado.org. I probably don't need to tell you that's the Beatles singing She Loves You, which was topping the charts 50 years ago this week. What you might not know, however, is that this week also marks the 50th anniversary of the magnitude 9.2 Great Alaska Earthquake of 1964. Now, I had no idea how much this earthquake changed our thinking about the world before an interview earlier this week with Mike West, Alaska state seismologist. What you'll hear on today's show is just the tip of the seismic iceberg. For example, this earthquake showed us the way that tsunamis can arrive before the ground even stops shaking. But what we'll hear about today is how the earthquake confirmed my favorite earth process, subduction, which is where one tectonic plate plunges under another tectonic plate. In 1964, the theory of plate tectonics, which would explain why this earthquake even happened in the first place, was still just a toddler. Now, before plunging into the interview, I need to let you know that geodesy, which Mike mentions early on, is the study of the change of shape of the earth, among other things. And now, this is Dr. Mike West, the Alaska State Seismologist and Director of the Alaska Earthquake Center. You know, the, it, it's really one of the, I think, one of the great sort of history of science uh, uh, topics of our time. You know, we, we talked a little bit about plate tectonics coming into being in the 1960s, but any of these processes are, are not smooth and cut and dry, and there's certainly a lot of controversy along the way. And uh, the geodesy story in the 1964 earthquake was absolutely pivotal in uh, people adopting, uh, coming around to the idea that, yeah, you know what? This really does seem to be explained nicely by this this subduction process that's been uh, you know so talked about recently. So we, we we talked a little bit about the strain, the the, the compression that is built up uh, over uh, many years when the land is not able to release uh, you know the convergence between the, the two plates. In the case of Alaska, the Pacific and North American plate. And when that does, when an earthquake does occur and that uh, strain is able to be released, that, that's something that we can measure on the surface of the Earth. And this is one of those very few times when the Earth uh, unfolds or you know, evolves on not even just human time scales, but really human time scales, seconds. And so one of the, uh, the, the probably the single most significant observation following the 1964 earthquake was the tremendous uplift and subsidence all across uh, southern, uh, the southern Alaska coast. The, the canonical uh, observation is, you know, barnacles, uh, uh, you know, barnacle-encrusted rocks that were now way above the tidal zone, and that was seen uh, in the more southern parts of the earthquake zone. In the more northern parts of the earthquake zone, the exact opposite occurred, and areas that had been right around sea level were now submerged 
Well, the easiest way to explain that by far is a fault that runs up and down, a vertical fault in the earth, or near vertical, and one side of it moves up in the earthquake and the other side moves down. That is a very, very simple explanation. So it's actually not this vertical uplift that proved, quote-unquote, uh, plate tectonics. There were two other observations that took a lot of time that were more subtle uh, that came around that helped uh, show that this idea of a giant fault just running 200 kilometers into the earth, this big vertical fault, was not the correct solution. Subduction, if you think about this idea, one plate diving down beneath the other one and they're, they're getting stuck on one another and then earthquakes coming, this is a relatively complicated idea. But two things happened in the months following the earthquake, months and years. One is that people began to map the aftershocks of the earthquake. So as aftershocks unfold from a large earthquake, they effectively map out the fault plane. They map out that surface that actually ruptured. That took a long time uh, in 1964. There was no seismic network in Alaska. There were, there were two seismometers uh, operating in the state of Alaska at the time of that earthquake. The other part of this, which gets back to our geodesy story, is the horizontal displacement. So we now have, we've got two theories uh, in front of us that, we're, we're vi that are vying for competition. One of them is this, this deep fault that goes deep into the earth and motion uh, on either side goes up and down on this fault. And if that were the case, then there shouldn't be a whole lot of horizontal movement on the surface of the earth. It should be mostly up and down. In the other explanation, the one that uses this new concept of subduction, uh, in that motion, when you have one plate uh, impinging on the other and getting caught up and sort of dragged down into the subduction zone and then releasing in a large earthquake, you have a very significant horizontal displacement. Okay, so now you've got, you know, in that sort of earthquake uh, scenario, uh, you have uh, all, all of the overriding plates, uh, in the case of Alaska, all of the North American plates near the subduction zone during the earthquake uh, rushing seaward uh, and, and uh, making up for that, you know, that several hundred years of buildup uh, of strain. But that's a, more, that's a far less obvious thing to observe. Vertical uplift is easy. We talked about the barnacle-encrusted shoals and the ghost forests, but if you go out and move the land side to side by you know, a few tens of feet, what, what are the markers? There, there are no easy, visible markers. That requires surveying techniques. And, of course, 1964, this is far before the GPS uh, revolution in the earth sciences. So over the course of months and uh, years following the earthquake, people undertook surveying campaigns and discovered that there had been tremendous horizontal displacements, horizontal movements, uh, as well during this uh, earthquake. And it fit perfectly uh, the models that were being put forth for subduction. It is really that horizontal motion 
that was one of the one of the, uh, uh, the smoking guns, if you will. That yes, in fact, it is incontrovertible that the 1964 earthquake was caused by the subduction process. And that was the last time we'd be seeing an earthquake of that magnitude until 40 years later when the ground ruptured off the coast of Sumatra. For more about the 1964 quake, what we learned, and how far we've come since then, check out the extended version of that interview that we'll post on Thursday, which is the quake's actual anniversary. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Well, if there's one thing more certain than taxes, pardon the reminder, it's death. Yes, our own death. Whatever your spiritual or religious belief may be about what happens or doesn't happen once we die, today we're exploring what science can tell us about what happens in our brains and the rest of our body, for that matter, as we near the threshold of death. Some of you may have experienced, or know someone who has experienced, what many call a near-death experience. Something like your heart stops, you walk effortlessly toward a tunnel, you see a blast of white light, you might call it heaven. Visions and feelings like these that people report they've had at the edge have some biochemical underpinnings. To help us understand what little science actually exists, and it does exist, Regarding the biochemistry of dying, we have in the studio Dr. Eileen Naomi Rusk. She's a neurobehavioral consultant here in Boulder, and she specializes in aging and brain injuries. Dr. Rusk co-directs the Brain and Behavior Clinic in Boulder, and she um, yeah, focuses on aging and brain injuries. So, Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Susan. Amy, for starters, I mean, many of us fear this topic. What, what got you so interested in, in death and dying and the science behind it? Well, actually, most people don't don't know this, but I, uh, I was actually in a cabin and I was electrocuted by lightning when I was a teenager. And after that, it took me a number of years to, uh, to put together that I actually hallucinated after that electrocution. And was it, did you think it was pretty close to death at the time? I felt as though I had my first experience of being grateful to be on this side of life. Wow. So give us the lowdown on what is known about, you know, chemical hormonal releases that can occur, as they say, maybe weeks before, but even moments before we die. Obviously not everyone, but, but what's, and I know a lot of these studies are actually animal studies, but for instance, you know, we often hear about the neurotransmitter serotonin Mm -hmm. that's released. Mm -hmm. What's happening there? Really good question. Well, I would say since the 1950s, beginning with Wilder Penfield in Montreal, actually, where I'm from, he did some studies on epilepsy patients. He was the first person to do open brain surgeries. And when he stimulated certain areas of the brain, particularly the right temporal lobe, he noticed that people had experiences which today we would very closely associate with out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, experiences of God. So Wait, this is in as they're being operated on. As they're being operated on, he wanted to make sure that the lesions he did to help the epilepsy weren't going to damage other important areas. So he would stimulate an open brain. You drill a hole through the skull Ouch. and then stimulate. 
interesting, eh? And that was in the 1950s. And since then, there have been um, many studies looking at certainly where God might reside in the brain, and I say that in quotation marks, and um, what might be associated with near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. So how then, over time, over the decades, have they made the link between that which may happen and does happen apparently to some when you're being operated on to what's actually happening in humans Mm -hmm. as we're close to dying? Mm -hmm. Um, One of the more recent studies, there have been very few studies done for ethical reasons. You can appreciate this. Yeah. But um, people recently have looked at Dr. Chawla, um, has recently looked at, I think they were at George Washington University. Uh, they've actually quite recently, with, within the last number of years, looked at um, the electrical activity of patients who were dying. They were critically ill. And they were looking at their electrical activity because they wanted to make sure they were comfortable and not in pain. And to maybe they were harvesting organs and they wanted to make certain when the person died. And very interestingly, they found there were electrical surges in the brain very close to the time of death. And this is neurons firing like mad? What's actually happening with this? Neurons really firing. Neurons that you would expect to be firings and brainwave patterns similar to when patients or people are awake and conscious. And yet they're brain dead. And yet their bodies are dead. Mm -hmm. So there's evidence that Maybe. I mean, the press have really run with this, but there's some evidence that the brain actually is alive even seconds after the body's dead. And if that's so, it's from the brain, obviously, that all this electrical activity is that's happening. And is that a good feeling of just, or is just sort of bucking the myth or the norm mm-hmm. that, of, of what is actually that threshold of death? You know, you asked me about serotonin earlier, and I didn't compl- I really didn't answer the question completely. Um, there's been evidence that opioids, naturally occurring opioids, might surge at the time of death. Like endorphins? Like endorphins and enkephalins. Those are the feel-good, you know, endogenous substances that people know about because of heroin and, and morphine abuse, but they stimulate natural feel-good chemicals. Serotonin is um, another neurochemical very involved in um, mood, affect regulation, and uh, some people also say hallucination-type experiences. So there's actually an animal study, a recent animal study showing that there are surges in serotonin in an animal model. Is this rats At the time of death. This is a dog study. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're they're models, so they're not observed This is actually observed data. This is a a Mexican study done within the last number of years on dogs showing that there are increases and surges in serotonin at the time of death. So so what's known about opiate release is from animal model studies. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Well, these were often theories. These these opioid studies are are very much um, based upon theories that people began to make in the 70s and 80s around near-death experiences and what might be happening. And then what about, um, tell us a little more about the neurotransmitter serotonin. That's another thing that's apparently released, maybe not in everyone, mm-hmm. but close to death. And, and how, how do we know what we know about that? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to theorize. Serotonin are really, ser- serotonin's involved with um, affective states, maybe hallucinations, um, 
uh, a lot of emotional states, so we shall we say. Often linked to and actually is a contributor to sort of feel-good states and That's states right. of happiness. And right? some people might say schizophrenia as well. Uh-huh. So maybe delusions or hallucinations. So um, if you if you put it together, I mean, people do have very interesting experiences. And a lot of the research is from cardiac arrest patients. But people who come back from having had a really um, close-to-death experience or actually died and came back in a cardiac arrest, and apparently maybe even as many as 20% of these cardiac arrest patients come back having had near-death experiences. We're unfortunately not able to, as you can imagine, (laughs) assess people's brain chemistry while they're dying for ethical reasons. But Um, there have been some, right, where they have connected them Mm -hmm. to EEGs and such in the course of dying. That's correct. And Mostly, and what have those, shown? those have shown that near-death experiences are associated, maybe associated with surges in electrical activity, particularly gamma waves, they say, and that's slow wave, but very much associated with alert, waking, conscious states. So I guess a couple of things is really interesting because it seems we're not implying and shouldn't be implying that oh, all these wonderful things actually are happening in our brain. And yet, there is this, I mean, there is neuroscience showing that at least in some people, this does happen. So, I don't know, does it give you cause for hope? And again, not to imply that all death is alike and by all means that it's all peaceful. Yes, that's right. And I really don't want to get into the the issue of a good death and a bad death Mm -hmm. because people really, you know, people want to talk about that. I'm very humble in this, and I don't think any of us know what a good or bad death is, really. But I feel very encouraged to know more about what happens at the time of death, be able to talk to my patients about it, and actually just share it as information because death sometimes feels so far away from us. To have a sense that something indeed, that this is really a threshold process rather than an actual moment, and that things really do happen in our brains and maybe maybe our souls, Maybe our spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, but our experience may be very, very interesting when we do die. Fascinating. Based well, upon this, this, some of this empirical data. We just have a, a couple more seconds. So just say, I know you're discussing with all sorts of people death and dying in the That's area. Right. Just a real quickie on what's happening in Boulder. And- my patients in my AgeWell clinic, the death cafes. We're hosting death cafes, the conversation on death. There's, there are many, many resources. And you can go to deathcafe.org? Sure or conversations on death. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll definitely continue with this topic. Thank you, Susan. That was Dr. Eileen Naomi Rusk, a psychologist who focuses on the neurocognitive effects of aging. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this quarter is Jim Pullen. This week's show was engineered by Shelley Schlender and produced by Beth Bartell, my co-host. Additional contributions by Jane Palmer and Ted Burnham. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Beatles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Susan Moran.